Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hello, everybody. I'm Russell, and welcome to Direct Perception. This is part two of a special edition of Daz's Friday Zoom chat. We've been talking with Bill Ray, Tom McNear, and Paul H. Smith, all Ingleswan trained remote viewers. Later in the video, Lynn Buchanan joins us, making four Stargate remote viewers answering questions from a live audience. Part two starts off with the dramatic answer to this question. What type of extraterrestrials has anyone had contact with? Bill Ray will read from his actual session report regarding an alleged ET encounter during a remote viewing session. Enjoy and thank you. This is from the name I can't pronounce again, so I apologize to you. My wife asks the question, what type of extraterrestrials have you had contact with I understand this is a loaded question. Okay. Uh, I'd like to, uh, Tom, you worked the uh, the incident in the San Mateus Gulf off the coast of Argentina. You and I and Joe all worked it. I, uh, I'd like to read my summary from that one session. And, uh, this, I, I took it on 7 April 85. Uh, start time was 8.17 and end time was 10.35. So I spent an awful long time on the, uh, on the, uh, on the session. I have no objections. I'll read it. It'll take me about five minutes, I think, maybe less. On an ocean a short distance from a coast in 1981, there was, let me say, what we did is skip, and this was Skip's private, I want of a better term, uh, project. And what we did is, uh, the way it worked is he gave me the coordinates, geographic, and I went there and there was nothing there but water, it's three o'clock, and it took the coordinates again to make sure, and nothing there but water, it took him a third time. Once again, nothing but water. And we did a movement exercises, 10 miles to the north, something should be visible, and there was land. 10 miles to the west, something should be visible, and there was land. So I was pinpointed in the Gulf, evidently. And then he did a movement in time, 1981, something should be perceivable. And uh, this is my, I did two summaries, one before we did step five and one after. On an ocean a short distance from a coast in 1981, there is a ship. This ship has a military feeling. It is smaller than a destroyer. There are only men on board. They are wearing clean white uniforms, maybe white shorts. Their men are young for the most part and are athletic. They are on a routine mission. There is a second group of people involved. They are in a large, shiny, metallic silver craft, which looks like this, and I... Have, it's either a delta or it's something coming to a peak on top, depending if you look at it from 90 degrees. The second group of people are unemotional, program, ordered, disciplined, interlinked, interconnected, 
interrelated and intertwined. They are cold and unpleasant. They are lean, sterile, and white, not further identified. They are returning and gathering, not further identified. I get no impression of any sexual differences among these people. They're all whatever. A shadow falls across the boat. The water is tossing and rising and looks like the sea is boiling. There is mist, vapor, and steam around the boat. The mist is damp and is of several colors. I do not recall what the colors are, and I feel that is not important. There is a complete panic and confusion and hollering. Uh, men are running and screaming uh, aimlessly. Others are terrified and are screaming, but remain where they are at their stations. The ship smells of insanity and fear. No one knows what to do. No one can take charge. There is a feeling, not a color, of red and black, like a photograph negative. I can't explain that any better. There is a tremendous feeling of gravity here. Skin is pulled tight across the cheeks, bones, and I have a difficult time moving my feet off the deck. I believe all the turmoil is being caused by the cold, unemotional group of people in this strange-shaped craft which is hovering over the ship. After a time, the strange-shaped craft rises up and goes west over the land, and all becomes quiet. In the morning, it is brisk. There is a salty, clean wind blowing from the north, I believe. The ship is floating in the water, quiet and empty, with no living persons on board. There is a feeling of entering the craft. This entering is forced and temporary. The attributes of the entering are several and previous, up in light, is resistant and is not resistant. The subject of the entering is experimental and learning. The topics are ongoing, biological, developing, encompassing, scientific, social, material, research, categorizing, cataloging, and developing. There is something important underwater, something to do with bubbles and spears. The underwater is oblong, metallic, hidden, sensitive, secretive, selective colony. The subject is life and ecology. Its topics are deep, dark, sustaining, nourishing, acrobatic, elongated, and saline. Okay. Uh, I have been deployed five times to a combat zone. I've been a paratrooper, jumped out of airplanes, ranger, climbed mountains, fell down. When I think back, I've been afraid a lot. I've, I've been accused of being adrenaline junkie, and I've been accused by adrenaline junkies of being adrenaline junkie. When I think back to all those times, I remember I was afraid, but I remember I don't feel the fear. I remember I was afraid at that time. When I think back to this sight, I feel fear. I can feel it in my arms and my hands and my legs. I'm afraid now. I'm, I'm feeling that emotion. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Tom worked it and Joe worked it. This was uh, in one of the uh, uh, the magazines that Irva puts out there. Cheryl used to edit. But that was my experience. Tom's, I think, was quite similar, and, and so was Joe's. Tom, do you recall the, uh, the, the site? Considering that was... 40 years ago, I do recall a target that I felt tremendous energy coming from somewhere 
um, and that I too felt that I wanted to avoid this energy. And I believe that was about the end of the session. I said, there's a lot of energy here. It's not an energy I want to uh, get involved with. And I believe that's, that was the end of my session. Paul, do you recall trying to work the session? Yes, I did work it. In fact, I was—I have my session here. Um, I did. I got an AOL of, of. Uh, I think I must have heard Skip talking about this before, sometime before, because I got the AOLs. Well, maybe I can find it real quick. I had it pulled up. Let me let me see what I can find here. Um, real quick. Um, oh, right. So <clears throat> I had an AOL of UFO incident of the cloud and the ship. And um, there was a cloud associated with, I think Joe had worked it before. I think that's what I did. I heard about Joe's session on this and he'd got this idea of a cloud and a ship or whatever. And uh, I kept AOLing, uh, uh, you know, ship incident, the cloud and the ship incident and, and I couldn't get past that. <laughs> and so I had to quit. Um, and uh, I, I think that's what, you know, what the best I could do. But I clearly honed in on this incident uh, because it really did happen. There's verification that well, whether it's a UFO or not, we don't know. But they found this, this Argentinian minesweeper adrift with no one on board. There was like food on the table and, and all kinds of us. No one was on the ship. And uh, so we know the some incident happened with that ship that was totally inexplicable. And all the viewers who worked it came up with at least some semblance of the same information. Um, I've, I'm trying to find, I wrote an article on this for UFO magazine. And I don't know which one it is. So I, I on the fly, I'm probably not going to be able to locate it. But um, it's very interesting. Bill, I'd love to get a copy of that session to complete my collection. Um, I, will I think... Yeah, I think Tom did work it because I have a recollection. Russell, you've seen those articles recently. Do you remember? Didn't I mention something Tom said in my article? Oh, was this the Dome of Light? No, that's a different story. That's a different right. Thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I. This was. I I do not recall, Paul. The most recent one uh, was one that Tom let us show in the underground base presentation which yeah. look like a possible undersea vehicle. But as far as the ship incident, I, I do not recall if you said Tom worked it. All right. Let me, let me see if he shows up in here. I'll, I'll try to search. Hopefully this is OCR'd. Um, it doesn't show up. I, I, I'd probably have to go through all of these articles. There's about three of them before I could find it, if it's there. So I don't know. Um, wait a minute. So what, what was the date you worked at, Bill? I worked it on uh, 17 April 85. Tom, when, when did you depart? I departed on 8 June 87. No, 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 Tom. 85 sometime. I, I don't recall. Okay, I have it somewhere, but I don't know. It's possible that you were gone by this point, although I think you left a little later than that. Mm -hmm. Whatever. Whatever. Mysteries to be solved, right? <laughs> I've seen Tom's session on it. Yeah. So you think he did where I think he worked it too. I just. And then Joe's is also quite similar. I think Fern Gavin also worked it. Okay. It's possible. 
It might be an 8,200, Russell, if you have, you know, if you want to dig into that. I will. Yeah. Okay. Bill, thanks for sharing that story. I, I, I remember you telling a shorter version of it in class and hearing the full length in the summary is uh, eye-opening. That's the most afraid I've ever been. Except when it comes to Sandy. Well, that goes without saying, yes. And she's right up there in the corner, so I didn't want to get involved here, Paul. Thank <laughs> you, my friend. <laughs> All Here's right. Paul. Not mine, Sandy. <clears throat> the next question uh, is from David. For you, Bill, what was the first-timer effect for you? What kind of revelations or experiences did you have when first starting to exercise the RV muscle? First timer effect. Uh, you know, that's interesting. I had two first timers effects, I think. The, the first was CRV. I think we went to San Francisco first, Paul, and uh, Jim worked us on a target and Ingle was upset because that was the first, but that was CRV. My first timer effect in ERV was after Joe left, we didn't have anybody who was working ERV. So uh, I approached Skip and uh, volunteered to work ERV. So I said, okay, we'll do it Monday. Now, I just figured out talking to Paul a while back, uh, everybody else had done ERV. Uh, I got there in January 84. Everybody else had got there early. They'd gone to Monroe, and they all had some ERV sessions. I hadn't. So when I came in Monday morning, I expected to be trained in ERV. And Skip said, okay, let's go do it. And the one thing I did, I had watched Joe work many sessions. And I, uh, while he was there, we used to monitor the, uh, the skin and the uh, negative, or oh, the polarity and those kind of things. So. I had learned to do my body the, the way Joe's body was when he was on target. And so I just did that and uh, uh, was able to recognize the signal line when it came by and grab hold of it and wrote it. Paul was the, uh, it, was, it was an outbounder and Paul was the, uh, the guy, I think he may have gone with Charlene, but you went into uh, Laurel, Maryland, and there was this, a flower shop, or not a greenhouse, and you'd gone through there. And, uh, and when we went through there, it was, you know, I had described it perfectly. It looked, and I say, look, and in ERV, it's kind of like, I'll, I'll call it paravision. You see things, but they aren't the same as they are in, in, in this reality as opposed to that one. But it was, you know, as I had described it. And uh, yeah, but what happened was I have difficulty training anybody ERV because I just kind of jumped in and grabbed it. I think Skip thought that I'd been through all the things that had happened before I arrived. And uh, so it was yeah, out of nowhere that I uh, was able to do that. And yet I thought it was a little more exciting. Paul says it's a good nap ruined, but but that was my that was my experience with the first time effect working the signal or working 
RV from a, a alternate perspective. I don't think I, I experienced it much on CRV. ERV was amazing though. So uh, we should also add another reason, and this is not a joke, uh, another reason why Bill tends to like ERV, and that's because as a paratrooper of the 101st Airborne back in the late 50s, wasn't it, Bill? 50s and early 60s. He had a hard landing. He fractured his back, didn't even know he had. You you were actually on active duty for something like a year or 10 years before you figured out you'd broken your back. 22. Yeah. Oh, so 22 years active duty. Later, and, I, and so was it your closeout physical? You discovered you'd broken it? Oh, uh, uh, my back went out when I was uh, at Fort Huachuca. There was no orthopedic surgeon there, so they sent uh, me up to uh, Davis Montham in Tucson with an Air Force, and they took an X-ray. I'd already had back surgery nine years earlier, uh, and they after we came back for months, Sandy and I were there together. He said, "When did you fracture your back?" And I said, "I never did." He said, "Yep, it's fractured here." So that was 22 years later. I. Uh, I broke my jaw evidently sometime and almost couldn't deploy one time because of it. And I have a high threshold to pain, which. Well, the bottom line was, I remember that you doing CRV is actually kind of hard for you because your back would really be painful. And when you did ERV, it was a whole lot less of a painful experience as I recall. Isn't that true? That's true. Yeah. Okay. That was the excitement. Let, let me add something here. You know, Bill, you said you didn't get any training on ERV. Well, you know, I was, what, three years or so ahead of you. And when I arrived, before I ever met Ingo or ever heard of CRV, um, Skip said the same thing to me that he said to you. And that was basically, okay, let's go over to the other building and we're going to do a session. And I didn't even know how to spell session at that point. <laughs> So I, I laid down on the bed and relaxed, and Joe and Rob Cowart were my outbounders. And so I described where they were, and I'll try and keep it real short. The, this was my very first time. And Skip said, okay, they're coming back now. Bring your perceptions back into the room. And my dad was a scientist. He told me never believe anything unless you've experienced it yourself. So as I was bringing my perceptions back into the room, I said, I need to know one thing for sure that will prove to me that I was actually there. So we all pile in the car, Joe and Rob and Skip and I go to, to the building. It was, a, it was a retirement community center. And we walked through and I said, they said, you, you described the windows, yeah, and Here's the seat that Joe and Rob sat on, and I had said I saw them sitting on a park bench, and it was actually there. And so a lot of those perceptions were all very accurate. But as we were leaving, or as I was coming back, I said, what will prove to me I was there? And I saw a spiral staircase. So as we were leaving the community center there, no spiral staircase. But we walked by a, a double door, and I said to Joe, what's in that room? He says, oh, I don't know. There was a, a meeting going on in there, and we didn't want to disturb it. And I said, well, can we go in there now? And he peeked in the little windows, and there was nobody in there. He said, sure, let's go in. And when we went in, that was their multi-purpose room. 
And at the end of that room was a stage and right in the middle of the stage was a spiral staircase. Mm. So that was my proof to me that I was there. And the important thing to me at that point was they hadn't telepathically sent back that spiral staircase because neither of them had gone into that room. So that was my first timer effect. That was my ERV before I even knew what ERV was. Skip said, just lay down on the bed and tell me where they are. And that was about the extent of my training for ERV. So just to jump in, I noticed Lynn is here. I didn't realize he was uh, in the audience. Um, so I, I don't know if anybody has any questions for him, but I thought I'd draw your attention to it. Thank you. So yes, welcome, Lynn. So now we have four Stargate unit members here. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us, sir. I could May. add. I, I could add to my first experience. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I think it was Bill and Don were sent out on a, uh, you know, to a place, and I was to just give my impressions of where they were, and all I kept getting was two people driving along, looking out the window, and looking out the window, and. So Skip finally said, well, you obviously missed the target, or you may have accessed them, but too early. When they came back, uh, they came in and Don said, we searched and searched for that place and never found it. <laughs> so that for me was the thing that said, hey, maybe this stuff works. Thank you. May I ask a question, or are we using the chat for that? We we are using the chat, and uh, I'm a little bit behind, so hopefully uh, I'll get down there. So let me go on to the next question. One question here. Why was Tom the only one to be trained in stage six? Tom, you want to take that? Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit of the history in about two minutes. Um, Rob Coward and I, and I like to mention his name as often as possible, he was medically retired from the Army because of cancer. So he is often forgotten from the remote viewing history. But Rob Coward and I started. We went and trained with Ingo two or three iterations before Rob found out that he had cancer. And from that point on, it was just Ingo and me. And then toward the end, I guess a year and a half or so, two years later is when Paul and the rest of the crew started. I went through stage six, actually stage seven with Ingo. And just as I was finishing stage seven was about the time that his contract with the army ended and Paul and Bill and Charlene and Ed had gone through th stage three, maybe were you starting on four at the time? I don't recall. We, uh, we had all the uh, information from Ingo, which is part of the contract and then Skip took over the training at that point. Yeah. But the bottom line, the reason I went through stage six slash seven was because I started early and Ingo's contract with, with the Army lasted through the time period I was there. But his contract ended and that's why everybody else stopped when they did. 
Paul can, he's the, Paul's the historian of the program. He can probably clarify that. Um, what was I going? Oh, right. So I just, I just posted a link um, on the chat to an art, uh, a little article I wrote about Rob Cowart. Um, just to warn you, the picture there actually doesn't have Rob in it. I was mistaken. Tom sent me a new picture and I forgot to upload it. So I'll have to go back and find that again and put it on there. But, uh, but you can read this uh, in your, in your, at your leisure. So the problem, yeah, was, um, and I, I was busy looking for, so I'm not sure exactly what Tom said. So it's maybe a repeat to some degree. The problem was there's politics going on in the department of the army over this program at the highest levels in the program. Bill knows about this because he was, he was uh, arguing as best as a major can with a general officer over the fate of the program when that was uh, Odin. I'm, blank, I'm blanking on General Odin's first name. Um, Bill. Bill Odin, that's right. And, and I could say lots of very nice things about him that had nothing to do with the remote viewing program. He was uh, ultimately became the uh, director of the NSA, and he was considered the least effective NSA director they ever had. He was... Your Dersnership. Say again? They used to call him your Dersnership. Your Dersnership. <laughs> Never mind, folks. That's an Intel community joke that won't make any sense to you. Anyway, <clears throat> um, the problem was that uh, Odom decided that he needed the program canceled, and despite what Bill did, he, there was no success there. And, um, and so they brought in another general who did cancel the program in the process they were required to cancel all the training contracts. So our con or, or not led anymore, essentially our contract that trained us up through stage three, they were allowed to finish out because they'd already expended the funds. Uh, but no other contracts were allowed. Tom was able to finish his because his contract had already been uh, let as well. So he was able to finish his out. Uh, and so it was army politics that ended this. We would have gone on to be trained uh, up to the same level Tommy had been were were it not for these politics and i have to say uh bert stubblebine general stubblebine who's a commander of inscom he was both the savior and the demise of the remote viewing program uh, he was really a great guy in many respects and he did save remote viewing on a number of occasions but he also kind of became a loose gun out there and he would go up to the vice chief of the army and tell him all kinds of wild stories, some of which were true and some of which actually turned out not to be that, but Bert did believe in. And, uh, and the vice chief said, there's something really weird going on. We can, can't have this. So, so he kind of got in with, uh, with Odom and, and who was the, uh, at that time, they call it Dixie. He was the senior intelligence officer in the, in the army. And they brought in another general Soyster who basically his marching orders were get rid of remote viewing. And, uh, and so that's why there's a lot more backstory there you probably really needed, but it kind of gives you the idea of the climate that we were operating under and why ultimately we didn't go on to be trained by Ingo. Fortunately, Tom had been fully trained. Skip had hoovered up all the information he could from these guys because he knew we were going to have to go on and do it ourselves. And so in spite of Ingo not being directly involved, we got really good training out of this. And the success of a lot of the projects we worked in the military are evidence of that. So anyway, sorry for the long account there. I'd like to say a few words about Rob Coward. Uh, in 74, I, I was a lieutenant teaching at the uh, intelligence school. I got a young staff sergeant in named Skip Atwater. 
who uh, Skip had, was working in SMAP's degree, was a Spanish linguist, uh, obviously a lot of potential, and I started harassing him to go to OCS, which he didn't want to do at the time. About six months later, I had I got another staff sergeant in to help me teach. That was Rob Coward, who was coming from Heidelberg at the time. So I had these two fantastic staff sergeants there, and eventually I uh, got skipped to go to OCS. And shortly thereafter, I got Rob to go to OCS, which I thought was helping the Army, but I lost two great instructors. So Rob... Uh, Skip got with Rob at one point and recruited him into the project. And my first day, my second day at the project, Skip and I went to Walter Reed, where Rob was at the time. Uh, he ended up getting uh, uh, medically retired from the Army. Uh, went down to Florida with a security manager for a shuttle down there. Uh, the cancer came back. He came back up. Uh, he passed away sometime after uh, after uh, Tom left the unit. He was a, a wonderful person, a couple of small kids. His wife, uh, who we knew from Fort Huachucas, both uh, Rob and Skip's wife. So it was, uh, uh, he was a unique individual. Uh, uh, I, I have very fond memories from Fort Huachuca. I saw him some after he got diagnosed with the cancer, but uh, uh, a very sad story. One of the other people that we don't give enough credit to when we talk about the, the early days of the project. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Bill. The next question comes from Joffrey. How is it that you can interview someone at a target and get the answer, does that imply that in some sense they're aware of you being there? Yes. Uh, yep, yeah, I'm aware of a, a couple times in training when, when, when Joffrey did that. Uh, in ERV, I frequently did that. Uh, let, me, let me ask Paul a question here, Will. We talked about some of the things the Chinese were experimenting with uh, on remote viewing and the, uh, the Chinese uh, characters. Is that free to talk about? So I only vaguely remember that. Um, yeah. And I, so I can't answer you. I don't, I don't oh, know. Okay. Maybe you ought to save it for your next broadcast. <laughs> And well, let me bring it up. And if I if I shouldn't be talking about it, then then stop me. But the uh, the Chinese have been experimenting, evidently, and I have this from a fairly reliable source, who I can't attribute it to. But uh, one of the things they're doing is, you know, there are numerous Chinese symbols. Is they take a symbol and put it over a piece of rice paper, put it in a box, and put it in the ground for want of a better idea. Then they target a remote viewer on it. Uh, if the remote viewer gets the target not, uh, or misses the target, nothing happens. If he gets the target, they dig it up and the symbol has been transposed onto the rice paper, indicating that something happened between the viewer and the target. And uh, uh, 
I think that when, yeah, when you're talking present time, that the mind can grasp that fairly easy. I used to think that you went through this big uh, matrix in the sky and got the information, at least with CRB, ERB, it seems more you go to the target. But I, I suspect that, that that answers the question in present time, how about when you go back to 1945 and ask somebody a question and they answer? That's the time becomes an issue, but when they answer, when they answer the question and that is the, the task for the target, uh, I can't explain it, but I've seen it happen so many times. That so, Bill, just to let you know, I have no recollection of that uh, that project. So, okay, that I was can't... the intermediate course that came up during a, uh, a uh, somebody talking to us at, at the course. Oh, right. <laughs> I have no idea of the classification of that if it's even classified. So, yeah. so you have plausible denial, Bill. Yeah, plausible denial, and I don't know if it's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, by the way, on, on Chinese characters, Ed Dames, who many people here know, uh, is a Chinese linguist uh, and very good at it. And uh, the symbol for discord that the Chinese use is one roof with two women under it. I just. That's a folk tale that may be true. Well, Ed has never been known to lie, so I, I, I'm, it's, it's gospel, according to me. So if we had more time, I'd tell you actually a funny story about Ed, but I think we'll pass and then we'll tell oh. us another time. Yeah. Yes, we're, I'm lagging a little behind on questions. We have a question from Roland. Every credible remote viewer will tell you that remote viewing is not 100% accurate. Why is that? If someone practices regularly for 5, 10, 20 years, why can't they ever get to 100% at some point? Who knows the answer to that? I don't. Lynn does. It's because of one factor that messes humans up, and that is they're human. What are you going to do? I will, I will declare that the answer. Anybody else want to jump in? Well, that, that is the answer, but I think the idea is that it, remote viewing has to do with human perception, and human perception is never perfect. You have witness effect. You have uh, perceptual, uh, you know, you, you see this all the time, visual illusions and things, but that applies to all of our senses. Just you, It's just not possible to become 100% perfect because humans in their normal state aren't 100% hundred percent accurate in their perceptual beliefs. It's just the nature of things. So, so Lynn's answer is absolutely correct. I just wanted to elaborate a little bit. Okay. As a special agent army intelligence, I've done thousands of investigations and uh, some on incidents and you talk to 10 people and you get 10 different stories and you take the ones that, that are similar and take those as fact and you still may be wrong. Once again, people perceive things according to their own yep. space. Let, let me add one more thing here. I, I, I discussed, Lynn and I addressed the principle, but we have the evidence, which is no one 
has ever shown that despite how long they've been in the field. Ingo wasn't 100% correct. Joe McMonigle hasn't been 100% correct. Nobody's been 100% correct, judged objectively. There are people who claim they were 100% correct, but if you ask them to present the evidence, they won't show you objective evidence for that claim. All right. So, uh, so we have evidence and a principle, and that's pretty much the way it goes. Be wonderful if we could find somebody who's 100% all the time. As far as, as there's any evidence, there's no such thing. So, okay. Good. Next question is from Don. Can the element of time when you are viewing something become confusing even when date and time have been specified in the target queue? I haven't encountered that. Uh, Generally, you go to targets in current time, and then if you're into stage three, you can do a movement exercise and move them in time, but, but you're aware of what you're doing. The monitor should be on top of that, I would think, if, if the viewer's not. Any other comments? Well, I think, I think the answer to this is uh, yes. Uh, we've seen evidence of that. Um, Pat Price, a couple of times, uh, produced really good information but uh, it was both current and past. Um, now, of course, in that case, we don't know if the time was specified in the tasking, but I've also seen it with, with the students who aren't quite disciplined yet. They, they've developed some skills, but they haven't got the discipline that they've always followed the task or intent where I've specified current time and they've given me past information. Um, I've also specified a specific time in the past and they've given me current information. So it can happen. Uh, the goal is to become a viewer that that follows the task or intent, intent explicitly so that you always produce what the tasker needs to solve the problem and you don't drift in time, you don't drift in space. So, but it's a discipline thing. It's practice that requires that, that, how you adapt that. So, See Lynn's previous comment. <laughs> okay, the next question is from Julie. What experiences, if any, have you had regarding remote influencing? I'm not a big believer in remote influencing. I think you can, you may be able to nudge somebody, but uh, uh, I think prayer may be remote influencing. But as far as Making uh, making somebody do what they wouldn't want to do from a from a standpoint, uh, I'm not a big fan of that. I I I think that would be very difficult. Okay. You want to say anything, Tom? No. So I'm I'm also skeptical of it. Now the fact is there is there are sorts of remote view in remote influence that exist. I mean, they've been demonstrated in the pair lab PK experiments have been straight demonstrated by Jack Houck and people who actually bent silver without touching it. That's all a form of remote influence. The prayer studies bill reference all form of remote influence. Um, this is another one of those fads in the remote viewing community where you bring up remote influence and everybody wants to talk about it and tell stories about it or one don't know how to do it and all that. The bottom line is, is it possible? I can't rule it out. Can I prove that it exists? I can't, and just about no one else can either, because you don't have a control group, you don't have a situation that that might uh, might obtain uh, 
if you use remote influence, but it won't if you don't. It's really, really would be very hard to prove that it's even real. Now, the fact that it does is real in certain other um, experimental paradigms suggests that it might be possible in a remote viewing environment. But um, I'm inclined to be dubious about it. And certainly I'm dubious about most of the stories that a variety of people out there tell about it. Uh, because generally speaking, it's hard to, it's impossible to know whether it might not just be imagination rather than any actual effect. So there is an, an interrogation technique where you mirror the person you're interrogating. He crosses his legs, you cross your legs, he puts his hand to his ear, you put your hand to an ear. The thing is, you try to pick him up and then he starts following what you're doing. Uh, it, it, it has mixed results overall it's uh, but it's a, it's an interrogation technique uh, and that's interesting bill actually it's kind of an nlp kind of a thing really yes. yeah exactly. so um in uh there are examples of of apparent remote influencing and even in my uh intermediate and advanced courses we do a thing kind of like it which is uh the original story was um there was a KGB agent that had been picked up in South Africa by the South African police. And uh, they were getting nowhere interrogating him. They wanted to try and figure out what the communications method was. And so I don't recall which of the early viewers. It might have been Joe. It might have been Hartley. It might have been um, – um, oh, I'm blank on his name. Uh, maybe maybe been one of them where um, Skip uh, asked them to, to communicate with the – uh, the KGB agent and, and trying to establish a kind of rapport with this agent. And we're talking at least an apparent telepathy here, right? Apparent version of telepathy. And then at some point ask the, the agent uh, mentally project this thought, show me how you communicate. And from the agent shows him this calculator looking thing. And so they send upstream and dip back downstream to the South African saying, okay, well, did you find a calculator in the guy's effects? And they hadn't. And they started interrogating all the officers that were associated with picking this guy up. One of them said, well, I did find this calculator. I thought it was cool. So I took it home. Right. And of course he lost his job, <laughs> but the calculator turned out to be an encryption and a burst, burst uh, transmission device. And so that was a case where remote viewing was successful. Now, was there remote influencing going on here? Was there a telepathic connection there? Well, Prima facie, on the surface of it, it appears there was, but there's also other ways of explaining it. So there, that's not even that's not even cut and dried evidence. There's a remote viewing going or a remote influencing going on. In my classes, I teach um, my students to find someone at the target, and then place a question into their minds. Show me what you do here, and so that sounds like a remote influencing thing. But you could also think of it this way: is it's a construct where you the viewer, him or herself, is then in a way permitted to get that kind of information, even though they really aren't communicating with that person. It's a way of, of, of persuading themselves that that information is obtainable. And so it's just kind of a heuristic, I call it a heuristic device, a way of obtaining information. Um, some people suggest channelings like this, where in channeling, uh, you're not really interacting with a discarnate entity. What you're doing is giving yourself permission to get a certain kind of information. And this, this is a kind of a, a mental imagery kind of a thing. I don't, I don't have a position on this, but it's a, a way of kind of illustrating a possible explanation for this that doesn't involve remote influencing. 
you know, we just don't know. So, sorry, another long, tedious description. Could I add something there? Uh, generally, when people talk about remote um, influencing in their minds, they think remote control. Influencing is not control. It's more like persuasion if you do it. But then one of the things you've got to understand about remote influencing is you do the session, something happens according to what you saw. Is that remote influencing or did you view it ahead of time? If you believe in remote viewing, then you have to question, is the remote viewing actually persuading something? To, you know, I saw an airplane hap- uh, wreck. Did I make it happen? People ask that question. But when they say, I did a session and it happened, they don't ask the question of, maybe I just remote viewed it ahead of time. Uh, there is no answer. Okay. In 84 and 85, Hezbollah was taking a lot of Western prisoners in, uh, in Lebanon in the Baku Valley. We would go there and try to find them and get the information over to the CIA in time to get a rescue party in. So the viewer would go make contact with somebody who's chained to a, uh, a heating unit in the wall and then try to, to identify it as much as possible and then have to come back. But w- what we would always do is have the viewers say, okay, talk to the person, tell them we're looking for them, tell them to, to be strong. And we would do all these reassuring things to keep the person strong. Now, I don't know if that helped the person there. We never checked it out. But the thing is, when the viewer came back, he felt better about having left this person with this pat on the back as he pulled out. Whether it was anything more than psychological, I don't know. Pass. Okay, next question. Um, Before I do that, uh, I wanted to let people know Mark Turner posted the link to Psychic Literacy, the book that Tom referred earlier. So in the chat is a link to that Ingo book. This question is from Andrew. Are there studies on, or are you aware of, whether or not practicing remote viewing has led to the remote viewer gaining other psychic abilities? Uh, I don't think there's any studies on it. It, uh, it kind of makes common sense that if, if remote viewing is uh, real and works, then, then other things may be too. I, but I don't think there's ever been any studies on that. Anybody heard of any? Okay. Okay. At this point now, um, there's a lot of people that have been waiting in queue for a question. So if you've already asked a question, I may skip over one uh, to try to get to some people who haven't uh, been able to get their question read. Okay, Cedric. I don't know if Cedric was here when you talked about your uh, ship incident, but his question was, what was your most earth-shattering target? And is there a different answer than the uh, possible UFO incident in regards to the ship? That's the one that had the most effect on me. As I say, uh, when I think back to that time now, when I think to the session, I can feel the fear I felt there. And that's, uh, 
any other time I've been afraid. All I can remember is being afraid. I can't remember how the fear felt, but that one I do. Okay. Let me search for another question here. Oh, Julie Tasker, thank you guys for your discussion on ARV. Mark Turner also put a link um, in there for that uh, ship incident. If people are interested in looking for more information there. Okay. RID 2.0. Do you believe that viewers are perceiving physical reality or some astral version of it? Up until the that Chinese uh, incident that I talked about earlier, and I'm once again I have no idea if that's true or not. Uh, it seems to me that in ERV the viewer goes to the site, and CRV the viewer is pulling information from the site into himself. Uh, if this, uh, yep. The site is real. The information is real. It, it's uh, in fact, it may be realer than real. That's if if you don't mind, Tom, I would like to ask you a question in relationship to your uh, Mars session with Ingo. Do you did you feel that you had traveled or appeared or had a presence at Mars? versus just a virtual recreation back here, if you will. I felt like I was there. Um, you know, I often wonder whether the information is coming to us or whether we're going to the site to gain the information. But when it came to Mars, I felt like I was there. Um, I had the uh, a lot of stage twos. I had a lot of kinesthetic sensations. I described the surface, which was later verified very accurately by some of the rovers that we sent there. So, yeah, I believe I was there. Good. Thank you. When I talked about the, uh, the boat and the UFO incident, I, in my summary, I talk about the skin being t tight in my cheekbones that I I have a hard time moving my feet off the desk, off the deck. So there was a sense of being there at that time when it was going on. Okay. Also in the chat, and I'm sorry, I'm going to forget his name. The gentleman that you spoke of uh, that was in training with you, Tom, that had cancer. Rob Coward. Rob Coward. Okay. Uh, Paul posted a blog article there about that phrase, content be damned. So that is some information. <laughs> okay, that uh, brings up a story, Tom. Yes, I, I guess it's a good teaching point. Um, Rob and, and Ingo and I were sitting around the table, and I had been doing pretty well with my first early sessions, and Rob was struggling a little bit. And Rob kept asking questions about the content and Ingo and I kept talking about the structure, stay in structure, ideogram, A, B, stage twos. And we went back and forth and round and round. And all of a sudden, 
Rob blurted out and thrust his fist into the, into the air. He finally realized that if you focus on structure, the content comes. And so he thrust his fist in the air and says, structure, content be damned. <laughs> and that's where that st saying came from. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you. This is a long question. So somebody fill out some time for me and let me narrow it down. <laughs> Bill, tell a story. I tell a story. Now, do, do, how much time do I have? Uh, since I'm just learning to read, probably about two minutes. Uh, well, then you might as well give up now, Bill. There's no way you can do it. No way I can do a, <laughs> a quick story. Huh? Uh, they say that a uh, American thinks pacing, an Englishman thinks standing. A Frenchman thinks sitting, and an Irishman thinks afterwards. You're a hard, this is a hard crowd, I tell you. Yeah. Try the Beatle. I'm, I'm going to. We're all laughing. We're just muted. <laughs> That's what it was. Okay. I'm going to try to summarize this question. It's from Rich. Rich is pretty new with remote viewing, he's been trained by John. Vivanco, they did a viewing of some sort of a flying craft with advanced mechanics. He had the impression that it was a human engineered craft while everyone else on the viewing assignment was perceiving it as aliens. Well, we can't get verification of what we viewed. How do our personal conditionings and opinions affect the session? Could a lot of us having sessions regarding aliens and other things be freaking us out about something natural or human? The problem with viewing aliens is you don't get any feedback. Now, that may change in the next couple of years, but it, there's no way to tell if you're on session or not. And the way you look at things, I think, affects to some extent the uh, the. Uh, Product you get. See Lynn's uh, earlier comment on that. We all we're all human. If if something is not natural, it's been constructed. Then you know, calling it man-made may not be wrong, even if it's made by something else other than a human. And that's all I have on that. Tom or Paul? Yeah, of course I have an opinion. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. By the way, Glenn, nice dog. <laughs> um, so first of all, I have to say, I would never give a student a session like this. I would never give a student a session that did not have feedback. If you don't have feedback, there's very little actual learning value in a particular target. Um, how, how are you going to evaluate how you did if you don't know don't know what the target is. So that's a bad choice for bad choice for a learning setting. Later on, after you've got lots of experience on your belt, maybe different story. But as a student, um, you need to always get feedbackable targets. And the earlier you are in your in your training career, the more concrete those targets have to be. I, I know there's this uh, desire out there to do exciting, fun, interesting kinds of targets, but you need to focus on the needs as, as, as you're learning. You, you, you learn scales before you learn how to play a, a, a chamber music in, in learning violin. You've got to learn the scales first. You've got to learn note placement, all that. 
and most people in the remote viewing world, when they just come into the fresh, want to jump up to doing the real exciting uh, things, which are not really the best for learning learning viewing. Um, but in this case, I also notice that because of that trend, but amongst a lot of the trainers to give you weird, interesting, fun, exciting targets, viewers often tend to default towards those things, even in if the target isn't isn't anything uh, special. So, for example, um, many of you know I have this uh, feature I post on on Facebook. I try to do it every week. Usually, manage it called Target Vault, where I post a a basic level target of very a variety of descriptions on there and then give you feedback four or five days later. Okay. I've been surprised at how often people come up with energy and angels and aliens and stuff. And in fact, that's not the kind of targets I post. And yet that's kind of where they default to. They're starting to learn. I'm, I'm noticing they're starting to learn. The goal is to learn to perceive first. Okay. Perceive at the standard sensory level. And, and if you can do that, that's the building block when, when, on which you build everything else. Um, so anyway, that, that's my response. It's, I'm not surprised they got aliens uh, in a target like this because that's kind of maybe in a way what they were expecting to get, even if it had nothing to do with aliens. So anyway, sorry. Yeah, uh, the, I'm off my soapbox, tirade over. And, and the questioner himself was the one who saw it as a human-made vehicle. So I would like to ask Lynn real quick, since you've seen so many students, if you had a group and there was some sort of aerial vehicle and one person said, this is, this is man-made, uh, and then the other rest of the class said, this is alien-made, how, 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 uh, how would you look at that or sort it out as an instructor? Uh, first of all, uh, Paul's answer is 100% correct. <laughs> okay. Paul is just 100% correct. Uh, I would never give a target like that. But uh, if they were to do that target on their own and ask me for an answer, uh, I would tell them, first of all, that uh, Ingo had uh, two ideograms as basic ideograms. One was structure and one was natural. And they always say, well, what's the difference? You know, what is natural and all that? Uh, structure, which I, I tend to call man-made, only means not natural. So an anthill was not man-made, but it's not a natural thing, it's made by ants. And so uh, uh, if they were to ask me which, you know, I said it was human. Was I right? I would have to say, I don't know. We don't have feedback. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so then we keep databases. And so I would say, look in the database, see how good you are. And, uh, you know, at that type of uh, uh, answer, they would say, well, I'm, they would look in the database and say, well, I'm 70% accurate in that, that's my track record. I'd say then believe it 70%. But there's no feedback. Okay. So. Thank you. I think I will, because it is an interesting question. Uh, Rich, I'll just ask you to turn on your mic for a minute and clarify. Do you mind? Not at all. Okay. So do you yourself, would you have been willing to accept it 
as an alien craft? In other words, would you have a propensity to interpret it as human-made? Well, like, personally, I do believe in extraterrestrials. Um, But if I were to see a UFO, my natural inclination would be that it was like a government craft or something. So I was just wondering if my personal inclination, uh, like I, I did view the thing, but whether I viewed it at a distance through remote viewing, or if I viewed it in person, my inclination would be man-made. Okay. So, so in a sense, like I always ask this question in the real world, if you saw something in the sky, you didn't understand, you would tend to see it as a, as a human-made vehicle. I would err on that side, yes. Okay. So it's very possible then uh, in remote viewing, you, you might do the same thing. So do you feel like your question has been answered? Yeah, I do. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for starting a good conversation. This question is from Rid, and it's directed to Tom. Did Ingo's view of CRV evolve over time post-1985? To my knowledge, no. There may have been some minor variation. One thing is the, the stage seven, which Ingo and I sort of discovered accidentally. I was working on a stage six and I kept getting these sounds in my head and I found my mouth trying to say the sounds I was hearing. And I looked at Ingo and said, what do I do with this? And he sort of looked surprised too. And he said, well, get it down on paper. So if you've ever tried to write down what a bird sounds like or what a a squeaky door sounds like, it's a struggle to try and turn that into words. But that was where stage seven presented itself. And he had a hypothesized that analytics may come before the phonetics, which is what we called that. So I understand that seven and eight gets a little squirrely. But um, no, he, he, he believed that controlled remote viewing, as he understood and taught it, was correct throughout. Yes, I remember the presentation you did on YouTube where you did a 2011 session for Ingo, the uh, Bridal Veil Falls or Niagara Falls. And I was trying to zoom in enough to see and it looked like you were doing standard CRV in that session. I was. Okay. Let's take a look. Oh, an interesting comment was made by David, not David Powell, but another David. Oh, this was during the point where we were talking about our personal filters. According to a neuroscientist and former colleague of mine, roughly 90% of what we perceive with our normal daily senses is in effect AOL. And, and I think I can agree with that. What do you think, Bill, in terms of, you've talked a little bit about the benefit or the, the daily benefit of having remote viewing in your toolkit. When you're especially in intelligence and you're, you're trying to find out, is this person this way or that way? How do you filter out 
your pre-beliefs, or maybe you know that they're guilty and, and you're trying to get a confession, but just from the intelligence point of view combined, how do you sort out daily AOL in the very uh, intense and critical situations you've been in? Uh, yeah, 90% seems high to me. I, uh, yep. Everything comes through our filters, but, uh, when you're, when you're involved in something where what you're perceiving, what you're gathering, putting together and passing on means life and death. Uh, I, yep. My personal prejudices may affect 20%, but, uh, I say 90% then everybody, everybody does live in their own reality, but you know, not to that extent, I would think that's, that, that seems awful high to me that, uh, that we do, you know, there is some empirical fact out there and there are certain jobs that require that we deal with imperial fact of mm -hmm. intelligence is one neural surgery is another, not that I'm comparing them, but, uh, it's, uh, I would, I would think that's awful high for AOL, but that's only me. Okay. You so, can go down the rabbit hole in this too. In quantum physics, we believe that material reality stems from consciousness. So does material reality exist as we see it, or are we creating that with our minds? So that night, it could either be, depending on what you believe, traditional physics, like Bill says, 90% is awfully high. But if you believe in quantum physics, well, that's probably around zero. <laughs> so I just wanted to say, uh, Bill's being too modest. He's actually the subject of that research, and the 90% is correct in his case. So, Thank you. <laughs> Is that an A on the curve? <laughs> so um, actually, I, I think I understand what this guy is saying, and I think it's a little bit of apples and oranges here. So I'm currently reading a book called The Character of Consciousness by David Chalmers. Now, I don't recommend that any of you guys read this because it's really dense and, and a whole lot of, of philosophical logic and stuff going on in it. But, but there's a lot of principles that are interesting in it. Um, and I think this has more to do with the, the nature of consciousness and, and neuroscience, how it cross-talks with neuroscience more than remote viewing. The fact is that everything we see as the world is a representation, representation of the world and and in fact, it's a construct. So do when we see the color red, are we really seeing a color? And it turns out, sensorily speaking, we aren't. What we're seeing is certain wavelengths that our brain interprets as color. So essentially what we're seeing is a construct of the world. And it, there is an analogy here with remote viewing in which you get bits and pieces of information through the narrow bandwidth channel that is essentially remote viewing. And, and our brains have to build a model of what they think they're getting. And that leads to AOL. So in a certain sense, most of what we, what we experience in the world is an actual construct of whatever the underlying reality is, which is in a way a definition of, of AOL. But, but I think that generally, then Bill is right on the other hand, when we talk about a, a higher level of, of interaction with the world, that in fact, we often do make good judgments, which are not analytical in the way AOLs are analytical of, of data, but we still can fall prey to it. In fact, in my classes, people, when we talk about AOL, they say, oh, 
Well, international relations is full of analytical overlay, right? One country interpreting what another country is doing based on a limited fact set and coming to the wrong conclusions. That happens all the time, even in our interpersonal relationships. So from that perspective, you know, 90% may be wrong, but there's still a lot of it. So anyway. Okay. Bill, have you ever seen or heard that uh, people on some uh, range of the autism scale are better or worse in RV, presumably meaning that they may have less uh, left brain filters? Uh, I don't, I, I'm not aware of any studies ever being done on that. I, uh, uh, I for one, had never tried to teach anybody who I considered autistic. So uh, I, I really have no opinion on that. I suppose it's possible. Okay. Tom, did you uh, have any experience or knowledge on that? No, I, I've seen nothing on it. Okay. All right, then. So, Julie Tasker, thank you for your answers uh, regarding remote influencing and that uh, she'll frame it and see it a little bit differently. Okay, this is from Anita Ikonin, and the question is, why would the military release remote viewing to the general public? What would be some reasons to do so and reasons not to, even though it has been done? Uh, well, <laughs> first of all, why did the military get involved in this? You know, you, uh, which always amazed me that scientists and uh, industry, big tech, and it was the basically the army that that came up, the CIA to some extent, but the army is where we developed it and where this came into vogue, uh, if you will. But I, uh, why they released it? I, I would say the giggle factor, maybe, but that might be reason for not releasing it. Uh, that that it's. Uh, Everybody wanted to use remote viewing, wanted to use the unit at, at Fort Meade, but nobody wanted anybody else to know they were using, the, using us because it, it, to some extent, I guess it was embarrassing. Uh, having released the information, I, uh, yeah, looking at some of the projects we did that are now out there in the open, uh, I, I I, I think they made a mistake. I think there are things that, you know, the technology of remote viewing release, but some of the targets, some of the things we found, some of the, uh, the things that we were interested in, I think should have remained classified. And I realize I've sidestepped the question pretty adroitly. And with that, I'll pass to one of my compatriots. I, I believe, number one, many of the senior level officers who made the decisions whether to keep the program or whether to release it to the public didn't believe in remote viewing. And I believe the people in power, when they became in power, wanted to say, that was my predecessor who did that. That, that is not me. It doesn't work. We're getting rid of it. And the, because of the rumors were out there, they didn't want that hot potato landing in their lap. So they said, it doesn't work. That was my predecessor here. We're done with it. 
So I think that's about the way it happened. Um, the, the 1995 report said, yes, it's working, but yes, it's got problems. And the, the powers that be said, okay, because it's got problems, we're getting rid of it. And they ignored the evidence that it was actually working in many cases. And um, it helps to point out that it actually wasn't the military that released the information. It was the CIA. And people think that, that they're all the same thing, but they're not. There's often an adversarial relationship between the military intelligence services and the CIA. Um, the CIA is a civilian organization that happens to have some military personnel assigned. The um, military, obviously, is particularly DIA, which owned the, owned the program at the time. Uh, before the CIA got it. The DIA is a military organization, just happens to have some civilian people assigned. So uh, there are like two different kinds of animals. One is outside the water. The, the other, one is a fish and the other was, is fowl, you know, um, even though they're, they have the same overall mission, which is support the national security of the United States. Uh, they oftentimes do not, it's like oil and water on many occasions. Um, in this case, the CIA wanted to get rid of it because it was run by a guy who didn't believe in remote viewing. And that was, uh, Oh crud. I'm blank on his name. What's his name, Bill? Um, uh, Deutsch. Jo is it John Deutsch? I think. Yes. Um, anyway, he didn't believe in it. And, and there's more, much more to the story than that, but ultimately it boils down to the fact that they didn't want it and they got rid of it. Now here's the interesting thing. Tom brought up the report that they used. What people don't know is that they had closed the project down. It had been closed for a month before they ever even started the review that they used to justify closing it down. So it's clearly the case that they already had the intent of closing it down even before they did any looking into how effective it was or wasn't. So um, is it a surprise the CIA lied? No, <laughs> it's not. Uh, but, but it's a fact that they already wanted to get rid of it. It had nothing to do with ultimately whether it worked or not. Okay. Uh, Lynn, did you have an observation on that? What, um, why would the military release remote viewing to the general public? Yeah, well, for the politics that they said, but uh, also there's a saying in D.C. that any question you ask about D.C. only has two answers. One is politics, the other is money. And the only question in D.C. that doesn't apply to that is where's the bathroom, which is said to be the only place where the politicians know what they're doing anyway. Okay. And, uh, but the, um, the thing came about right as the Cold War ended. Now, I think they were correct in doing this. If you have the money, are you going to get rid of field agents who have been out there for years? Are those crazy psychics out at Fort Meade? I think the answer is clear. And so politics and money, uh, I think, was the obvious two answers. Okay, very good. So here uh, is where we're at. Uh, Paul has a point on time. There's a few questions left. So, so if, if there's any more questions coming in, I'm going to be ending with the ones that I'm looking at now. So... It'll be three hours here uh, in 10, 15 minutes. Slowly wind it down. Bill, 
if there's anything that you haven't said that you would like to say, I would love for you to close out. And so you come up with something, let me know. And I'll go with a question to Bill. From your remote viewing session, what have you learned about the nature of time? Oh, that's, it's interesting because as I mentioned earlier, uh, people will go back in time, you know, on a remote viewing session, you know, you can send somebody back 60 years and they ask somebody at the site a question and the person answers them. You know, that would seem counterintuitive, but it works all the time. Uh, I know, yeah. Several of the students here, I've done that. I have done it. I imagine everybody's done it. How does that, yeah, how does that coincide with time? Uh, I'm, a, I, I'm not quite sure I know what time is. I'm sure Paul doesn't because he's always late as witness. <laughs> but uh, now I, it's time is, is, you know, just keeps everything from happening altogether, I guess. I have no idea what time is, but I have seen things that let me know that I don't know what it is. Thank you. Okay. I, a question came in, and obviously it was back when we were talking about AOL. It came in from uh, Andra. AOL is analytical overlay. So it's when you have an intuitive impression coming in, and it's, say, red and round, and you say, oh, it's a ball. So it's when your left brain, if you will, leaps on the perceptions coming in and comes to a premature conclusion. The way those are handled is to be set aside in the right-hand part of your column and what's called objectified. So in a sense, kind of melting it down out of your mental space and putting it on the paper as ink. Some people will set their pen down to actually break the physical contact. Others just have a process. So once you've dissolved that, now there's room for uh, more intuitive impressions to come in. Okay, we're almost at the end. Oh, good. Mark Turner has offered a lot of information via links and now we're gonna present one of his questions. Which came first? Soviet interest in remote viewing, thinking the U.S. was getting ahead, or the U.S. thinking the Soviets were getting ahead? Uh, I think I can answer that. The, uh, the way the Army got involved in this is Skip Atwater, second lieutenant, OPSEC officer, which is a terrible job for a CI guy, was out going to units and, and, and coming up with means to protect themselves from the Soviets as far as alarms, fences, uh, computers, that, that kind of thing. And uh, the commander asked him, well, how, I saw something on the Russians the other night and they're doing this thing called remote viewing. How do I protect myself? And Skip went back and brought the question up to the general and the general said, well, figure that out. And that was the birth of the Grill Flame, Center Lane, uh, uh, Stargate. Uh, Skip, 
was basically an opsec as what they were doing. They were supposed to be protecting against it, but they rapidly became a collection organization. Thank God, because opsec is boring. And but this, we were a reaction to the Soviets. Anybody disagree with that? No, I think that's. Yeah. I know you'd be disappointed if I didn't, right? <laughs> so, so that's the proximate cause of of the military side of this, right? Although the Air Force actually had a program for three years before that, but uh, the original course start was put was put off in Targan and Ingo and all of these guys, right? Uh, which put off and Ingo got together in '72. The CIA came in at the end of 72 and expressed interest in them researching it because of stuff they'd found out about the Soviets. The Soviets were already spending hundreds of millions of dollars, not rubles, but dollars on what we would consider paranormal research. And so the CIA was worried about that. But there's another part to this story. The Russians may have gotten Soviet slash Russians are kind of uh, the same there. The Russians had gotten somewhat the impulse to do this because in I don't remember the exact date, but in 1961, roughly, I think is when it was, um, there was a story in, I want to say it was Le Monde, I think it was a French newspaper to start with, um, about an ESP experiment that was done with USS Nautilus, the first nuclear submarine ever, um, that involved ESP and it reported as being successful and all that. Now, we don't know if that actually happened. There, it seems to be an apocryphal story that didn't actually occur, but they, the Russians thought it did. And so part of their research may have been sparked by their belief that the Americans were doing ESP research with a nuclear submarine. And so they started their program and whether or not we were really doing it later on, because the Russians had this program going, we had to get into it, which is what allowed remote viewing as a, as a government program to start. And so the answer to this is it is a chicken and egg thing. It's hard to tell which came first, the chicken or the egg. So okay. I don't know. Let, let me muddy the waters just a wee bit more. Oh, please. I'm so eager. <laughs> the German girl, one of the, the people I was uh, teaching uh, CRV to in 96, she had learned ERV from a woman in Frankfurt back in 71. Yeah. So where that came from, I have no idea, but we went ahead and she could be RV. Well, if you think about it, a lot of what Skip did, he'd actually gotten from earlier, just don't, don't make anything for this term, but earlier esoteric traditions and literature as well. He would, he would borrow from that if it seemed to have a core that fit into remote viewing. And, um, I mean, he was interested in um, uh, something dynamic, psychodynamics. He, he had some interest in NLP. He had some interest in, and of course, the Monroe Institute stuff. So um, there was already a kind of a tradition of something we might call ERV out there in the world. So it's possible she got that, and it just had a resemblance to what ultimately we were doing as ERV. That, that would be my my explanation not to contradict you you're my senior officer here so there you go i'll see you after this meeting uh -huh. could i muddy it up a little bit more certainly muddy uh, back in the uh, 60s when i was in russian school one of my teachers 
uh, told me that she had been in a, uh, she was, uh, you know, she had come to the States, escaped from Russia. She told me that she had been in a unit where they were doing psycho, psychometrics and uh, bio, bioenergetics uh, back in the uh, 40s or 50s and that uh, they got it when the uh, Ax Axis powers divvied up Hitler stuff and uh, that the US, France and England weren't interested in it, but Russia was, so they took it. So that was verbal. I've never seen any documentation on that or anything else. So, uh, but that's what she told me. So I have no idea either. Well, I'm glad we clarified that point. Yeah, there we go. Okay, this is gonna be the final question from the chat. And then I'm going to move to a couple of people selectively to do a closeout and then end with Bill. So the final question here is from Glenn. Aloha, Bill. What do you think about remote viewing in a Faraday cage? What about a hyperbaric chamber? Ah, well, we had a hyperbaric chamber at the, uh, at the uh, project, which we never used. Uh, Interesting. I uh, I think that uh, you know it might resolve some questions if we if we go in a Faraday cage. Uh, you know, is the person going out to the site? Is the person bringing the site in? Yep. Uh, I would like to see it. I have no idea what would happen. I think it would still work, and that's just my gut instinct. Pass. So actually, they did a lot of uh, Faraday cage experiments at SRI. In fact, most of the research they actually did there, either the viewer or the target was inside a Faraday cage. Okay, And in fact, um, the submarine experiment that they did, uh, uh, Stephen Schwartz got the sub, but then Ingo and Hella were each in the sub remote viewing. And that was essentially a, a super Faraday cage. And they said it actually worked better. Remote viewing actually worked better with that kind of shielding. Uh, I don't know about a hyperbaric chamber. I mean, we actually had a uh, sensory deprivation tank, Bill, not a hyperbaric chamber. Uh, that was a bit hyperbaric. No, never mind. So, <laughs> but um, I don't know what the point of that would be. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, there might be some physiological effect that would enhance remote viewing. At this point, I don't know what it is. I'd kind of be interested in why, uh, why you might have asked the question, Glenn. Um, Glenn, you want to talk about, about it? Huh? Yeah, I'll, I'll reply. Uh, I'm a been a diver forever, mm -hmm. but there is a noticeable uh, concept called a martini effect. The deeper you go, you know, uh, every time you drop an atmosphere, uh, you can no longer count on your watch. You have to use a, a dive computer, especially on deep dives, because your left brain disengages. And, ah. You know, you might do crazy stuff like, you know, a see a fish coming by and he doesn't have a tank on or a regulator. You might try to give him your regulator. It's just, uh, I've done a lot of deep dives, especially, you know, where I was. So, uh, you, you do lose the ability to access the, uh, uh, left brain functions. You give a slate full of math problems at the surface 
the diver solves them pretty fast. You go down to uh, three, four atmospheres, give them the slate again. They can't even make headway on the computation. So I was wondering if uh, by disabling the left brain a little bit, it mm -hmm. would uh, improve your direct access to right brain functions. Well, that's never been tried. Um, and, and that's an interesting, it's almost kind of a different take on sensory deprivation, isn't it? Sort of. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering how, you know, I, it seems like maybe the pressure is relevant here, um, but you also could think about uh, at depth, you are in a sensory deprived environment, right? You Orientation is off because it's hard to tell which way in all directions, the visual experience is pretty much the same. So, well, it's, it's know, like I don't know. Be interesting. It's like a, a thunder jacket for your dog when the thunder goes or fireworks are going off. Uh, when you get down, it's cooler. There's a lot of pressure on you. All your mm -hmm. all your spaces, your air spaces compress. You mm -hmm. feel comfy. You feel snugly. You want to go to sleep. <laughs> well, you know what? I think it'd be an interesting experiment, but it's not one I would volunteer for. <laughs> Then just let me say that I have seen Paul's left brain disengage at sea level many times. <laughs> okay, so let's start our wrap-up. First, I would like to move to Daz and ask, uh, Daz, is there anything left open, any questions you have? And also, thank you for creating this whole forum. Um, no, no questions that's uh, probably relevant for a an open forum. I have some questions or some research that I'd like to uh, talk to the guys about at a separate time. Um, but yeah, it's been a great talk, and it's great hearing all the uh, all the stories and sharing all the information. I, I especially like the uh, the UFO stuff. I don't know why, but it seemed quite relevant this evening for me. So thank you for that. Thank you, Daz. Yes, thank you, Daz. Uh, I would also like to say, Glenn, I've heard about you and never uh, had a chance to meet you, and that was a pleasure for me, so thank you. Lynn, is there anything you would like to put in to the wrap-up? Uh, no, I came to observe and listen, and so thank you for including me. Uh, and, you know, I, I hope I was able to help a little, but uh, mainly... I came to hear these three. Uh, these are these are the people I learned from. Thank you very much, Lynn. We were glad that you did show up. Paul, is there anything you would like to put there at the end of this show? You mean after all the jabbering I've already done? No. <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let Bill close it out. <laughs> okay. Tom, is there anything you would like to add here to close close things out? Well, like Glenn, I came here to hear Paul or to hear Bill talk. So thank you for the invitation, Russell. It was great to see Bill and Paul and Lynn long time. It's been forever since the four of us were actually in one location, sort of digitally right now. So let me so throw thanks this out. For the, oh, sorry. Thanks for the invitation and um, thanks again. Well, Tom, so, thank you. Thank you very much for coming. So what Thomas said actually reminded me of something I, I want to do, and it would probably have to be a private setup, but maybe there's something we can do publicly. I'd love to do a Stargate reunion, right? That involved all the folks that are still around. Um, we probably have to do it in Virginia because uh, it's hard for Joe to travel, but uh, I think it would be great if we could do that. So all of you, you four anyway, 
keep it in mind and, and maybe we can figure out a way to include the public in some way with it as well. So anyway, that's all I have to say. Thank you, Paul. Okay, Bill, it's oh. grand finale time, man. Well, boy, that's that's final. Uh, Russell, thank you for, for hosting this. You did a super job, as uh, as we all expected. Uh, Daz, thank you so much for the for providing the uh, the infrastructure for this for for not only tonight but I, I guess every Friday. Uh, it's uh, been great seeing seeing people. Glenn, I haven't seen you since Vegas. It's been a while since uh, you know. Uh, Lynn and I used to live about 70 miles from each other and we didn't get together near enough, but it's the, the people here, Paul, Tom, it, it's, you know, but looking, you know, the old timers, the old guys, but looking at, you know, Joff, Russell, Daz, you know, the next generation coming up, you know, I've, uh, I've, great hopes for the future of remote viewing. I think, I think it's in, in, in great hands. Uh, I just love being able to go and work with Paul and teach the students, meet the students and just, you know, see the wonder in their eyes when they, when they see the miracle happen, find something that, that is impossible to do and they do it and they do it again and they do it regularly and they do it without a lot of effort. And it's, it's, it's been amazing for me to be a part of this, and I thank you all for being here. God bless. Okay. And I think it's fair to speak for everybody and say it was amazing to, to be here with the four of you all in one place, as Tom said. I uh, appreciate the audience. Thank you, everybody, for coming. This will be hopefully posted by Sunday evening. That link will go out as widely as possible. And uh, all the work you four did to bring remote viewing to us people out here <clears throat> means a lot. It's, it's changed all of our lives and, and we thank you. All right, with that, we shall end. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this historical event. We will be adding more high quality remote viewing content in the future. If you feel so inclined, subscribe, and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed. Remote Viewed.